from the grave and won that victory that we just sang about. We thank you and we praise you for that. And we we're so thankful for him and the victory that comes through the cross, through the shed blood, through the atoning sacrifice for our sins, Father. And we just can't thank you enough. And so, Father, this assembly is full of those who have gathered together who believe in you. They believe in your word. They want to be uplifted. They want to worship you most of all. And so, Father, we gather here together this day to worship you both in spirit and in truth. And so, Father, as we open up your word, the word of God that lives and abides forever, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be near, that he would move through here, make your word become alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it may pierce to the dividing asunder of our soul and our spirit, our joints and our marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So, Father, we just pray that that, that Holy Spirit allows your word to be sunk deep in to our soul and our spirit. Let it become a part of us, Father, and may we be your joyful servants all throughout the week and then come back next week to be recharged, Father, and just to do it over again so that we can worship you and then shine your light to those round about us. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word. We ask these blessings in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Oh, well, good morning. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, the day before Valentine's Day, actually. And so I wanted to share a message that's not going to really sound at the beginning like it's around that. But I, what I wanted to present was the Valentine of God's word to you this day on why it's going to be so important to be in Christ and what he's done for us. Um, the Valentine can be spelled out in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so through those words, Valentine is right through the middle of it, and it can be spelled that way. But if you brought your Bibles this morning, turn them to Zechariah chapter 5. Son, this is going to be something. Zechariah chapter 5. This is a wild vision that we're going to be talking about today. Um, as you're turning there, we've saw so far, we've, we've covered the first four chapters. And again, this week, there's too much meat on the bone. So we're not going to get all the way through it. Well, I'm only going to get through a couple verses today. But everything that, that centers around it and provides a foundation for what is being prepared to happen in this vision is just so important that we just can't let it go. We've got we've to dig into this. But so far we saw the vision of the Lord as the rider on the red horse. We saw that even in the lowest of times that he's right there with us. That was such a great message to learn that even when we think he's not near, even when we think things are going wrong, we're, when we're in the valley of life, that he is there near he has already done a re reconnaissance trip of everything that's going on in our life and he knows what it is and he's getting prepared to take care of it and stop the powers that are working against us by those horns and he's going to uh, revive us again and re-strengthen us. And then we saw going on through the next couple of chapters all of the wonderful visions. Joshua, we saw a couple of weeks ago where Joshua, man, he, um, he was standing... They, he'd been caught red-handed. 
Satan brought him up spiritually before a trial up in the heavenly realm. And he was standing there and his clothes, his garments that he was supposed to be of service in was just covered with, with excrement and it was covered with all this filth. And the devil brought him up and said, take a look at him. And the Lord says, I rebuke you because he's in Christ and you don't have anything to do with him. What a message that is for you and I, isn't it? I mean, any time that we think that we can be brought up before that trial and the Lord says, Satan, I rebuke you, get out of here. This is one of mine. And then he told him, he said, take off those garments, put on the clean garments and put a turban upon his head. And that turban of, of the priest says holy unto God and so it's a vision of how we are accepted in Christ and that blood washes all of that filth away and all of our sin and and makes us with new garments presents us holy unto God through his righteousness last week we saw well three weeks ago we had the ring of fire the wall of fire that our God protects us and takes care of us and then last week we had the vision of the two olive trees that represented Joshua and Zerubbabel or the political and, and the re religious sinners, uh, uh, the leaders of that, so that through them they were like two olive trees that the olive oil dripped down into the reservoir and then from there into the lampstand so that the seven lamps that was in the lampstand that was in the holy place would be burning. In other words, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be able to go out to everyone. So we've been so uplifted by all of these uh, messages and the visions in the first four chapters that now as we get to chapter number five, we're going to have a transition. Um, it's going to get ready now. We've had a lot of the good news, but now the grace always happens before the judgment for you. See, there had been some things going on, so God's getting ready to move. So he always presents grace. He always presents a way out. Before the judgment comes. He always gives a chance for that. But now we're going to see a turn in Zechariah chapter 5. And, um, and it's really going to be pretty awesome today though. So if you're there with me in, in, in uh, chapter 5. Chapter 5 I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's only 11 verses but it begins with the word then. And so then is a connecting word. And what then means is that what we've seen so far through those first four chapters is connected to this in some way because as soon as he saw those things and that vision was closing up, now it says, then I saw. So he says, then I turned and raised my eyes and I saw a flying scroll. And he said unto me, and that's that teaching angel, what do you see? And so Zechariah answers and says, I see a flying scroll. And its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. And he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll. And every perjurer shall be expelled according to the other side of it. And I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter into the house of the thief and into the one who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and its stones. And then the angel that talked with me, he came out and said to me, lift up your eyes now and see what this is that's going forth. And so I asked him, what is it? And he said, now this is going to get crazy. He said, this is a basket that is going forth. 
And he said, this is the resemblance throughout the whole earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up. And this is a woman that's sitting inside of the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket, threw the lead cover over the mouth of the basket. And then I raised my eyes and looked. And there were two women coming with wind in their wings. For they had the wings like a stork. And they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. And I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying that basket? And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. And when it is ready, the basket will be set there upon its base. Now, is that some crazy stuff? Y'all know what it means, right? Well, I don't, I don't either. <laughs> We're going to try to figure some things out. But I mean, you know, you, you start seeing th this woman in some kind of a basket and that's wickedness and shoving her in and a lead pot being put on there. And, but then storks are carrying it. Man, we got some stuff going on, don't we? We'll talk about that next week, preview of coming attractions. I'm not going to get that far, but I, it's going to be so fabulous. I want you to, to, to come back for that. So what, what we're going to do is cover the first part of this one. You see, everything that we see here, especially in this, in this uh, chapter, is a part of the operation of God. You see, almost everything in the Word of God is, comes as patterns. And so once you start seeing the patterns, then your mind immediately starts connecting those dots together that this pattern goes this way, and this is what it's talking about. And so that's what we're going to try to do today is connect the pattern on God's coming judgment. You see, the coming judgment was getting ready to come upon the Medes and the Persians. Uh, then it's going to, it's all throughout history, his judgments upon nations that turn away from him and nations that must be brought down from power. It says in the book of Acts, it says that God has set up the boundaries, the, the, the boundaries of nations and their times. He sets them up and he takes them down at the appropriate times for the things that they've done. And so what we see is a pattern of events that takes place as, as this happens. Uh, it'll happen again in A.D. 70 whenever they tear down everything that has to do with the Jewish empire and the temple. Later on, Rome, who did that, will be kind of taken down from their lofty scene of power and someone else comes in. Um, I pray that this doesn't happen with America for a long time, but this is cycles, and especially when, when in that cycle the nation turns away from God especially one who had been a client nation unto God and, and on your coins as in God we trust and everything about us was supposedly founded upon the, the morals and the character of the word of God and then to see where it's trying to be led by the, the powers of this world and the, the culture change, um, we, we've, we've got to put a stop to that and bring it back to what it's supposed to be or else we will come into the same pattern. So it points prophetically what we just started to read also about the end times. This same pattern will be developed in the end times. And we'll see that in a moment in the book of Revelation. But the first four verses here point to you and I. It pointed to God's people at that day. And in the future it points to you and I as God's people. Uh, the, the church. At this time it's the Jews that's been in captivity and dispersed for these many years. And they're, 
will they hear the good news and repent and continue to walk or continue to walk in their own ways? So let's unpack this. Let's go back to verse 1. And Zechariah turned and what he saw was a flying scroll. Now what's that? You know, we kind of think we know what a scroll is, isn't it? That, that thing that they wrote the word of God on back in the day before we had books. They, they wrote on papyrus, they wrote on leather, and they would roll it up into a scroll. But I never saw a scroll that could fly. You know, and especially in that time, because they didn't have any of the, the engines and the things that we have now. We can make planes fly. But I've never seen just a scroll fly upon its own. So it says it's a flying scroll. Well, what a scroll is, is when the word of God was written there, and it's rolled up, just like we would put our Bible on a shelf what happens whenever we open that Bible up? The word of God begins to be revealed, doesn't it? When it's like this, when it's put away, it's not being revealed to anyone. But when you open it up and you take a look at it, then the word of truth can begin to be revealed. So what we see in this vision, when it says that the scroll opened up and it was this size and it was beginning to fly about, was that the word of God is getting ready to be revealed and to go out amongst the world. And so it reveals the word of God and uh, it's significant, the things that were told about this scroll. It was flying. We saw its dimensions. It's very big. It was 20 cubits uh, in length and its width was 10 cubits. Man, that's a big scroll, isn't it? Because a cubit is 18 inches. It was... It's a measurement from the tip of the finger to the elbow. And so it's, it was close to 18 inches. So a cubit was then a measurement. It was a standard of measure. So whenever we see that it was given a standard of measurement, there's something about it that's going to be a standard, which is what the Word of God is, isn't it? The Word of God is a standard upon which we stand and the principles that's behind it. The reason it was mentioned was so that we would know that the Holy Spirit did not have to put in there how big it was. But he did it for a purpose because this is a standard that God is going to be using to judge the world whenever it goes out. We will always be judged by the word of God. Nations will be judged by the word of God. Not what I think, what you think, what anyone else says. There's one standard, one measurement. And that is the word of God. And it's 20 cubits by 10 cubits or 30 feet by 15 feet. And that's very important that he said that because, again, in that pattern, whose words are going to judge us at the end of, the, of days whenever we stand before the throne? The word of God and the things that the Lord Jesus taught. In John chapter 12, Verses 44 through 30, uh, 48, Jesus said this. He cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in the one who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light to the world. We saw that light last week in the, in the, the candlelight that was going on. That's the light that is coming back into the world. If anyone hears my words... And does not believe, I am not judging him at this moment because he is still speaking these words. He is still alive. But then he says this, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, 
I do not judge him now. I did not come into the world at this time to judge but to save. But in the end that will change. And he says he who rejects me and who does not receive my words has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So it will be the word of God, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in that last day is the standard, the measurement by which we will be judged. One of the standards of judgment from the word of God, Jesus said like this, John chapter 3, verse 36. He said, He that believeth in the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son and his words shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So these are the words of Jesus. This is one of the standards that's going to be used at that time as the word of God goes out across to judge. And... Uh, it's been revealed to us in the previous chapter about the lampstand and the olive trees and the light of the world and that the world wants to reject that because their deeds are usually evil and they don't want them to be exposed. But God is patient, isn't he? God waits upon those. You know, the reason that nothing has happened now is because people are still coming to Christ. We've had several this year. God is not going to do anything as far as the end of time, until every person who will believe in him will be saved. It says in, in Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. In other words, it's like whenever I tell my grandson, this is what I'm going to do if you do this, and then maybe he does part of it, but then he looks at me and, and you, you get a little slack and you cut him some slack and say, well, next time, you know, no, that's not God. It says God's not slack concerning his promises like I would be, as some people count slackness. But he is long-suffering toward us. He is not willing that any one of us would perish but that all should come to repentance. So why has not God already acted swiftly upon his word to do the things? He's, he's not ready. He's still waiting, isn't he? There's still people who need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ before that time, and God is going to wait patiently upon that and put up with what's going on until then. And so he's very patient. But when he moves... When he decides that it's time and he moves, he does it decisively and he does it quickly. And that's how the book of Revelation starts when it's the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ and who and what he is. It says there in, in chapter 1, it says that these are the things that he showed us that will quickly come to pass. And I've mentioned before because I really like the illustration that when it says that they will quickly come to pass, that word for quickly is tachometer in our language it's tacos and what it means is if your car is idling when things are just running smoothly it's on a it's on a certain and it stays there but whenever you get in a hurry when there's an emergency when that light turns green and you want to get out there before the other guy and you step on the gas what happens to that rpms boy it revs up don't it 
And that engine turns faster and faster. And that's what that word means. That when the time comes that God is getting ready to move, the tachometer gets going and things will move quickly. And I don't know about you, but things are moving pretty quickly if you're paying attention. I don't have regular TV. I don't watch regular news. I try to watch some Christian headlines and try to get ones from who I can trust and sources I trust. And um, I didn't write this in here, but I'm just going to tell you. That I am a little concerned right now. Things, things are moving in the wrong direction in a lot of places. I saw a clip, and I don't think it's been on any of the mainstream news medias. I don't know if any of you saw it, but with the Ukraine situation and with all that's going on over there, Putin had a meeting with Macron this last week. And they sat far apart on this table. I don't know if you saw the table. It was way far apart. But Putin had a conference afterwards where he was talking. And I have seen a couple of news clips that went up to a certain point, but they all stopped right there. The news clip I saw from the Christian point of view carried it on for another minute of what he said. I've not seen that anywhere. You may have seen it. Uh, but what he said was, was that nobody wants this to happen. You, nobody wants a war. Nobody wants what we're going to bring. He has promised to bring nuclear weapons at the first sight that anyone's trying to come against him. Now, where I see it cut off and has not been given out, he points his finger. He's told them, I want you to put it in print. I want you to tell everyone, tell the people so that the people will know this is not what I want. Tell your governments not to force this issue. And then he said this. He pointed out there and he said. You will not want what happens. It, it will not be good for either side. But he says the moment that article 5 and whatever that is. I don't know. It's some agreement that they have. But he says the moment that article 5 is enacted by y'all. He said you will not have time to repent. Did anyone else see that line? I see a couple of hands, and that's it. You see, he said, he point blank told him to tell everyone, you will not have time to repent because it will not be good. I will strike. We have hypersonic nuclear weapons. I don't know what's going to happen to us, but I will push the button and they will be there so quick you will not have time to repent. And when he started using biblical words like repent and you won't have time. It gave me a chill. I wanted to share it with you. We don't know the day or the hour. If you're not in Christ today's the day and the hour because I don't know what might happen this week. He said if something goes on. It will not be good and you won't have time. It will be here within seconds quickly. So when I hear those things in, in biblical terms and I, I read the word of God, I'm concerned. And so I want to share this with you that I see things speeding up. I'm not saying that they're going to happen and I'm not trying to throw fear. I just want you to be aware. And to be warned. And I'm not a prophet. I'm not saying that those things will. I'm saying he warned it. And he used the, the biblical word you won't be able to repent. And that struck me as something I needed to share with you.
So, so why did the Holy Spirit use this precise measurement then? That God is patient, he's long-suffering, but there's going to come a time when God will move and it will happen quickly. Well, why did he use those measurements? It had to be for some reason because we already know that the scroll is the revealing of the word of God and what must go out. But he used 20 cubits by 10 cubits. That's, I always like the Bible to interpret the Bible. Uh, that way no one else can put in what they want to think about it. And those kind of measurements are only used twice and both times it's used about the tabernacle and the temple of God. In the tabernacle of Moses in the book of Exodus, the holy place was 10 cubits by 10 cubits. The temple uh, in Solomon, when he built it in 1 Kings chapter 6, that's why I wanted you to go there as your Berean chapter. In 1 Kings chapter 6, you will see that the holy of holies, he made it 20 cubits by 20 cubits. And the cherubim that were standing in there around the uh, ark of the testimony was 10 cubits. It was 10 cubits by 10 cubits. So when you have 20 cubits by 10 cubits, the only place that it's mentioned is talking about the temple of God and about what is on in there. And did you know that judgment always comes from the temple of God? There's a temple that's in the heavenly realm. And Hebrews tells us, and the book of Exodus tells us, that God, when he told him to make the tabernacle, and when they made the temple, he said, you do it after the pattern that I give you up on the mountain. And Hebrews says that that's a pattern after the one that's in the heavenly realm where our Savior, Jesus, is the high priest and presents himself. It always comes from there. And so it's telling us that not only is it the word of God that's going to be used as the standard, but I believe that the minds of those who, who, who search these things out says that it begins with the temple of God, with God's instruction, but then it goes first to his house. And that's what Zechariah was talking about there whenever he's giving those measurements. And the first place that that judgment's going to go through is through the house of Israel before it goes out to the other ones. Now you might begin to be shaken, but... It, Stick with me here because it's going to get good. Okay, where am I at? Okay, the temple is where God's mercy and grace meet the justice of God. That's where that Ark of the Covenant is and the mercy seat and the blood gets sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And so that's where God's justice, though, sees the mercy, sees the redemption through the blood. And so that's what he begins to look for when he begins to look for it through his people. Uh, God distinguishes the reason it begins with us first is before the judgment of comes God distinguishes between us his children and between those who are of the world that's going to receive that judgment so that's the Valentine's good news that's in here turn with me with the book of Ezekiel now and I'll begin to show you this pattern because like I said it's always a pattern and it's always about what's in the word of God so in Ezekiel chapter 9 Here's 11 verses here. This is what, this is the pattern of what goes on. It says, beginning in chapter 9, verse 1. This is some exciting stuff now that's being revealed. Then he called out in my hearing, this is Ezekiel writing, with a loud voice saying, let those who have charge over the city, so this could be the city, it could be the nation, it could be the world. This is, the, this is one of the patterns. Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly, quickly, 
There were six men that came from every direction and of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a battle axe in his hand. Boy, they're ready, aren't they? He's calling them in. But then there was one man that was different. One man among them was clothed with linen, and he had a rider's inkhorn by his side. They went in and stood beside where? The altar. So here we are in that temple. They're in the temple of God. They're standing by the altar. That's the altar of incense that goes up. So they all present themselves before the Lord and the brazen altar, uh, the bronze altar. Now, verse 3, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone and rose up from the cherubs were there where it had been and it, to the threshold of the temple. And then he called to the man who was in the linen, the man with the rider's inkhorn beside him. And the Lord said in verse 4 to him, Go, go through the midst of the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. First thing I want to ask you is, do you sigh and cry over the abominations that's going on in our city, in our country, in our state, in this world. He says, who am I separating out? My people. And my people who are sighing and crying and praying to me over the things that are going on in this world. And he says, I want you to put a mark on their forehead to mark them. But then to the others, in verse 5, to the others he said in my hearing, you go after him. So this is going to happen first. And then you go after him. And then you go through the city. And I want you to kill. I don't want your eye to spare. I don't want there to be any pity. But utterly slay old and young. The maidens, the children, the women. But do not come near to anyone that has the mark. And it begins where? At my house my sanctuary this will begin at my house and but don't come near anyone who has the mark i want that mark don't you <laughs> i want that mark we're going to find out what that mark is in a minute and you're going to be so happy if you're in christ but anyway i i want this mark the ones who are being separated out before the ones that are going out to be the destroyers happen. The man with the rider's inkhorn. This angel of God is going to go out and he is going to mark the people of God who sigh and cry after the abominations that's going on through the city. And whenever you go out to destroy, you don't go anywhere near them. Begin at my temple. Verse 7. Then he said to me, now it's time. Defile the temple, fill the courts with the slain, and go out. And they went out, and they killed in the city. And so it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone. This is Ezekiel. And I fell on my face before the Lord, and I cried out and said, Oh, Lord God, are you going to destroy the remnant of Israel and the pouring out of your fury on Jerusalem? And he said to me, man, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed. The city is full of perversity. And they say the Lord has forsaken the land. In other words, they're saying the Lord's not anywhere around us. We can do what we want to do. And that was the attitude. He's forsaken us and he does not see us. Verse 10. But as for me also, this is the Lord talking, my eye will neither spare no will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds upon their heads. And just then, 
verse 11. The man clothed with the linen who had the inkhorn at his side, he reported back to the Lord and he said, I have done as you have commanded. So before all of that happened though, the man with the writer's inkhorn had went out and he had marked all the people of God who sighed and cried over what was going on. So there we see how that it begins at the temple of God. It begins from the orders of God to his servants and it begins to go out through the land. But a precursor, a pattern to this is, is that God has his servants. He's got his angels who will go out and mark upon those who are in Christ the mark upon them so that they will not be harmed with that. Here's something I want you to know. Take this next slide as, as your Valentine's card, one of them, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Know this promise. Here's a promise that you can underline and take with you today from a God who cannot lie that says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure upon this one thing, that having this seal... What did they just do with the writer's inkhorn upon the people? They put a what? A mark. You know what that mark is? It's a seal. And it says, the, the foundation of God stands sure with this seal from God. The Lord knows who are his. Aren't you glad of that? God knows those who are his and he has this seal upon him. So let everyone that names the name of the Lord turn away from iniquity and depart from it and follow him. For the foundation of God is built upon the word of God, the standard of God, and he knows those who are his and he gives us a seal and, and it goes out first to his people before it goes out anywhere else. Now, we're going to see this pattern continued. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. There's, there's five verses right here that also go along with this pattern. God makes a distinction between us and those of the world. It reigns true today to the church. This is the word of truth, Peter says. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief. We'll see that in Zechariah 5, if you remembered that from our reading, that he goes into the house of the thief. That'll be next week. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. But yet, if any of you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God on his behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin and where does it begin, Peter says? You see, the pattern doesn't change. It's the same pattern. It's time, when it's time for the judgment to come, it must begin at the house of God. And if it begins first with us, what shall be the end of them that have not obeyed the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit unto God the keeping of their souls in well-doing as a faithful creator. It begins at the house of God. God knows those who are his. And the word there for scarcely be saved, it's actually a word that goes with the beginning of that where if you are suffering from a Christian, don't be ashamed. What it means is, is through much persecution, 
through a lot of trial and trouble and problems that if we scarcely get in through through those problems that it's hard for us to get through is basically what it's saying because of it's easy to get detoured because of how hard it is he said if if those who hang on through that and they are verily saved what happens to all of those who have never named the name of Christ I don't know I don't I got an idea but I don't want to find out he says what will happen to them if we are, are saved through that much hardship? What will the ungodly and the sinner, where will they appear? And what will happen to them? Well, they're going to be on the other side of that. But we who are gods are made righteous by being in Christ Jesus. And we are saved through much difficulty through that. Now, we're going to continue that. Are you ready to go a little deeper? We're going to see the pattern continue even all the way to the end time. Turn with me now couple chapters over to revelation i want you to go to chapter seven with me and we're going to begin there in chapter six well let's go all the way back to chapter four while you're turning there you turn to seven but in chapter four john was told come on up here and i'm going to show you the things that's going to take place after these things after what was talked about in chapter two and three the church age and so he's taken up and he gets the throne room scene and he gets to see God sitting on his throne and he sees the beast and the 24 elders and all of them and they cast their crowns to the Lord. In chapter 5, there's God presents the scroll of the earth, the, the scroll that gets unfolded that goes out into all of the earth. There's the scroll that has seven seals and John begins to weep because they've looked everywhere and they can't find anyone worthy to open up that scroll. And then it says, but the, but the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy. And he looked and he saw one who was like a lamb who had been slain. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ who was able to take that scroll from the hand of the one who sat upon the throne. And they all began singing and song and praising that. And in chapter 6, if you remember, the seven seals begin to be unlocked one at a time. And those seals are coming apart and the scroll is getting ready to be unwound. And judgment is getting ready to go out across the earth like we are, we are studying. So in Revelation chapter 7 then it begins with uh, like this. After these things, as the scroll is being opened, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. And they're holding back the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. Did you know that God has weather angels? And those angels are controlling what's happening. And here they're holding back destruction. They're holding back the winds that's going to go from the four corners of the earth and sweep across. And then it says, and I saw another angel. So before they can let loose of what's getting ready to happen, I saw another angel that ascends from the east. Having what, if you're there with me? What's he got? He's got the seal of the living God with him. He says, I saw this angel. He comes in with the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. And he said, hurt not the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees until what? That's right. Until we have sealed the servants of God upon their forehead. You see, if you are in Christ, you don't have anything to worry about. 
In Timothy, he said he knows those who are his. We're seeing a pattern that goes out from the Old Testament all the way till the end that before anything begins to happen, God says, hold on, the writer with the ink horn, whoever it is, you go out first. Here we have angels going out and saying, before you release this upon the people, mark my servants. Mark those who are in me. And it was with the seal of the living God that they were getting ready to mark them with on the servants of God on their foreheads. You know who you know what the other mark is? The mark of the the mark of the beast, isn't it? The other mark is the mark of the beast. It's on their foreheads that you'll read later on. But you see the servants of God are distinguished by a mark, a seal that God gives to them so that we are distinguished the righteous from those who know not God. The seal of the living God. You know what a seal represents? A seal was like your signet ring that you put your seal. It was your signature. It, it shows ownership. It shows authenticity. And it provides safety to that ownership of who owns it. So whenever you are sealed with the seal of the living God, that means God now owns you Satan has no part, just like we saw with Joshua, right? That, that high priest, when, when God rebukes Satan, he says, you have no part nor lot in him, he's mine. I rebuke you for even trying to do that. We, that seal of God is a mark of ownership. He owns you and I. That means he provides for your and I's safety because we are his possession. And that seal is authentic, it is real, and it is upon us. And it goes out first before anything else happens. Isn't that beautiful? Man, the same pattern. See, the Bible has the same pattern throughout. Now, go two more chapters over to chapter 9 in Revelation. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. The fifth angel now sounds, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened up the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke that ascended from there, from the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power. You see, they don't just have the power, they are given the power. They are given the ability to do what they're going to do. As scorpions of the earth have power, they're going to inflict a painful thing upon those who are upon the earth if you read the rest of the chapter. But it says in verse 4, and it was commanded them though, you see as they're getting ready to come out of that pit and they're getting ready to go and to hurt the, the people of the earth, it says this, it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass, any green thing, or any tree, but only who? Yes. They are not to touch anything except those who have not the seal of God on their forehead. So who's going to be persecuted by these things when that starts unrolling? Those who know not God and have not been sealed by the seal of the living God as we have just saw. So when all that's rolled out. I want to have the seal don't you? Well let's find out what that seal is. There's got to be a pattern for that too. A pattern of progression. 
I would say that first let's start where we were in, in Timothy there a minute ago. The foundation of God stands sure having what? This seal. That God knows those who are his. Who God knows that are his, they have the seal of the foundation of the living God. Then you get to Ephesians chapter 1. Chapter 1 verse 1 begins that this is written to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. That we, the people of God, should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Verse 13. In whom, after you trusted... And you heard the word of truth. So what, what's, what's the precedent? You hear what? I wish Ray was here because I'd say faith comes by what? And hearing by what? Okay, so your faith, your trusting in God comes from hearing the word of God. What was our standard that was coming out in Zechariah that was 20 by 10? First of all, the word of God. The standard of measurement is the word of God. That was what it was. So whenever you have trusted, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom? In Christ. After that, and in that gospel of Christ, after you believed, you were what? Huh? Sealed. So where do we get the seal from? When you believe the word of God and you trust in that word of God and by faith you obey and do what the word of God tells you, then you become sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Remember that word promise. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise at that point. You've got God's mark upon you, which is what? The earnest of your inheritance until the day of redemption that you as the purchased possession. What did we see the seal represented? The ownership. That you were the purchased possession of the one who has the seal upon you. We are the purchased possession of God. He places a seal upon you. And it says that is your earnest unto the inheritance of the redemption in Christ Jesus at the end of time when that judgment goes out that we've been looking at. Has anybody ever bought a house and put earnest money down? You know what earnest money means? You have the full intent of what? Buying it, paying the rest of it, to finish the deal and take possession of. Is that beautiful? When you and I believe in Christ, and we follow that belief and that faith, and we are baptized into Christ, it, we become possessed by God a possession of his and we get sealed with that and that is God's earnest money the Holy Spirit that he gives to us and that seal that he gives to us is earnest money of God saying my word is as good as gold I will come back and pay the rest of it I will take you all the way as my possession that's what that means those who are in Christ Jesus that you, we've been sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise and that is the earnest down payment of our inheritance that's going to happen on the day of redemption when it comes. We are that purchased possession. Then how about 2 Corinthians 1 up there, 19 through 22. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached, there's that word going out in that gospel, among you by us, even me and Silvanus and Timotheus, 
and was not yea and nay, but everything in him is yea. For all the promises of God in Christ are yea and amen unto the glory of God. Now, he that established us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who hath also what? Sealed us. There you go again. And he sealed us. When we heard that word, we believed we were established in him, in Christ. We were anointed and sealed with that spirit in our hearts. And that is the earnest again payment that he is going to reclaim us as his possession on the day of redemption. Is that not wonderful? Is that not good news? Okay. Now, as we listen to the first gospel sermon, we can see that I told you to remember that word of promise that it said and the sealing and that gift of the Holy Spirit. That very first gospel sermon, and what do you think they preached? What do you think Peter taught them? Everything about the Lord Jesus Christ and this one that you crucified, that you said was a traitor and you did all of this to, he was the Son of God. And God now has him on the right hand of power with him. He is resurrected on high and he says in verse 36, Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that that same Jesus Christ whom you crucified, that God has now made him both Lord and Christ. And it says that they at these words were pricked in their heart because they were convicted. They were guilty of that. And they were pricked in their heart by those words. And they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said to them, Repent. Change your mind about the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he is the Son of God. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name or by the authority of Jesus Christ. For what? Forgiveness of sins. And then you'll receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And what is he? For this promise, that's the promise of God, is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with any, many other words, he convinced them and told them of this. And it says there in verse 41 that all who believed gladly received the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were baptized and that same day they were added to them. Later on in verse 46, it will say added to the church. But they were added to them at that point. 3,000 souls. And then later it says they continued in doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers, praising God and having fellowship. And, and they were good with all of the community. And it says that the Lord continued with this pattern, adding to the church those who would be saved. Is that not a beautiful story? So as our, as our praise team comes on up, there's our Valentine message out of that that Whenever we see the words about the judgment of God, know that before anything can happen, that there is a pattern that God uses, and it's a promise of God that goes out, no matter if it was in Old Testament time, our time, or at the end of the age. It says, God says, hold on before you go out, before my word and my standard goes out to judge either a person, a nation, a city, or the world. Before it goes out, send out my servants. Make sure we've marked everyone who's believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they are mine and my possession. And you harm not them. 
They are my possession. Thank you, Lord, for such a Valentine's gift as that. The love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are the purchased possession. We are sealed. We are marked. We're his. But that's for those who have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that we just had. And I would pray that if you are here this day and you have never done that, if you are not marked, if you do not have that seal of God upon you, like I said, I don't know what's going to happen today, tomorrow, or 10 years from now. But I would not want to go out into this world with the way things are going and not have the seal of God. And to those who have been, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it great? To know and have this encouragement from the scriptures of God. That no harm, nothing can happen. We, we might lose a life in something. But he says, that's going to be a promotion. Because I've already marked you as mine. And whether I take you at the end when the trump sounds and the dead in Christ rise. And then we which are alive and remain go. Whether it's at that time or because a bomb goes off. Either way, you won't be hurt. Because you will be immediately extracted into my presence. Praise God. So Father, we thank you for the pattern that you've given in the word of God. These are the type of things that can develop faith. It develops trust. It lets us know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, your word, your promises say that the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal that the Lord knows those that are his. And that you show us through the pattern of your word that before anything happens you know who we are we are marked as your possession and whatever happens will only be for our good to those who are in Christ Jesus and so thank you father for those tremendous examples your wonderful word and those precious promises father and we give you thanks we worship you and you have all honor and glory in this in this assembly in Jesus name amen